Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone. We have a specialized skill set for you today. Most of the skill sets we've done up till now have been rather generalized, but we were talking about it and we're thinking, you know, we're in the double digits now. We got to step it up a notch. So today, we're talking about functional troubleshooting. Some of you might not know exactly what that is. I did a lot of different research, but before we get to that, Tom, the skill class is functional troubleshooting. Uh, that's a tricky one. I can't just give you an answer. Uh, let's say it's a 10, but <clears throat> it depends. Did you restart it yet? Yes. Did you unplug and replug the thumb drive? Yeah. All right. Well, it's like a 7 then. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. When I was researching, obviously, functional troubleshooting is not something that's easily researchable. But what I came into contact with is that it is part of a thing called design thinking. And uh, design thinking is the way you create something, but in the process, you troubleshoot it and prototype it and do all these other different things to make sure that by the time you're ready to make a functional thing, it should actually work. And there was some very, I'm just going to kind of skim over these topics, but the, the, the parts of design thinking include, <laughs> there's a section called wicked problems. There's problem framing, uh, solution focused thinking, abductive reasoning. That, that one, I was like, somebody's getting kidnapped. Abductive? Abductive. Not deductive or? Not deductive, not like Sherlock Holmes, abductive reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Coevolution of problem and solution, and then representations and modeling. And sort of nested within all these things is um, functional troubleshooting. So let, let, let me define what that actually means. Regular troubleshooting could be, say, you have something that's broken and you need to fix it, and so you have to troubleshoot where the problem is. Functional troubleshooting is when something needs to be created out of nothing and there may be no or very little frame of reference for this thing to be made. And so you have to troubleshoot like the creation process, basically. You're, you're trying to do something that either may have never been done before or uh, only has something similar and you're changing the majority of it. So there's maybe only like 10 percent of an idea. And we thought, you know what, this is something that is definitely maker-related because we're constantly making things that are like what somebody else made but vastly different or something that's completely different, like Andy Klein, who's constantly inventing new things for us to use, you know, in the workshop. I'm going to throw it out to Tom because I think that he's he's been brooding on this subject for a while. Oh, he's not. Never mind. Tanda, what do you got? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I, 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 the look on Tom's face was good. Yeah, that, I agree. That was good. That was an example of abductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. All of his reasoning looked like it had been abducted there for just a just a split second. <laughs> yeah, when we started talking about the topic, I you know we I went in a lot of different directions as far as what it means and now you've you know you've given us a definition that may be even different yet but you know i think everyone kind of 
understands what we're talking about, where you're making something and and there's some big limitation. Either it either it hasn't existed before, so you have no reference, or maybe it exists, but you just don't have the materials or you don't have the tools to do it in a traditional way or you know, a combination of those so that it's a situation where you're really having to think on your feet. So I, I wanted to stop you, Tanda, because I made a mistake. Um, all of the things that I just gave you were actually not the design thinking process. Those were actually sub-processes because <laughs> there's so much. It's, it's hard to pull everything down. So real quick, this is the actual design thinking process. Definition, research, ideation, prototyping, choosing, implementing, and testing. So that's that's like from start to finish. And then the other things I mentioned were actually parts of those processes. So it's it's very complicated. Anyway, I'm trying to spool this down into many, many different sources, but go right ahead. Oh, that also includes a process called divergent thinking, which I, I don't know how you could have divergent thinking and design thinking together. It sounds like they fight, but anyway, go on. Well, you know what I think? I think that uh, anyone who is out there that kind of has a knack for making things and is, is inventive and tinkers, which are probably the majority of people listening to us uh, or in the maker community in general, I think that it's something that comes naturally to people who are tinkerers and it's what they really enjoy and they have a they have a skill for it in some you know maybe some people's it's not as developed they just haven't been doing it as long or they don't have you know areas that they're strong in or weak in um, but they have this kind of unidentifiable ability to visualize something and then make it a reality and I think a lot of the, you know, what's written down and what you're reading, PJ, is someone trying to put words to that process and write it down so that people who don't have that skill set can understand it, which I'm not sure if it's possible. That That's kind of my read on that. It's someone trying to, you know, quantify what this skill is of people who call themselves makers and they're trying to codify it and, and give words to it. And, and the average maker is probably just saying, well, I don't know. I just kind of see in my head how it would work. And I look around my shop and I see things that that might work and I try them. And then I make it out of paper and, you know, and then I then I make it and it doesn't work. And I go, oh, that's what's wrong. Yeah. And then I think someone has tried to put big words to that. The, the big words, like what you're just describing, I'm going I'm to read you the definition of ideation because it's almost exactly what you just said. Ideation is where the designer commences creating possible solutions without examining their practicality until a large number of solutions has been proposed. Once this is done, impractical solutions are eliminated or played with until they become practical. Yes, what we do at the beginning of just about every idea and it, and it's quite quite fun too. I mean, if you have other people around, like if the three of us were coming up with, you know, a design, and we're just open to throwing out anything, and sometimes you just throw something out as a joke, just because you think it would be funny. Like we could just cover it with peanut butter, and you know that would hold it, and and everyone laughs, and then you know five ideas later, you're like, well, 
you know, we could stick it with some kind of glue or something, and it, it triggers ideas that are viable, like like you said. You know, maybe you can find a way to make those oddball things turn into things that are that work and are viable. It's it's a combination of brainstorming and just um, stream of consciousness, I think. Mm-hmm. To piggyback what you're just saying, it's a big part of it is just saying yes to everything. You know, when you have an idea, just say yes and continue. Like, don't shoot anything down. Don't figure out the problems with it. Just just say yes and and keep going because the next yes might just replace that thing anyway. It, it reminds me of that uh, that phrase it was really popular a while ago saying no no ideas are dumb or no ideas are stupid. There's or there's no bad ideas or something like right. that. Right. The the way I look at that is when you're brainstorming there's no bad ideas until you're done brainstorming and then you pick out all the bad ideas and get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a book I I read most of once. That, uh, I think it was the six. <laughs> you like that? It's called the Six Thinking Hats, and I'm gonna butcher the. This is what I got out of it. But each hat was a different color, and you, when you're holding a meeting in a corporate environment, the the blue hat is the yes hat, the red hat is the no hat, the yellow hat is the emotions hat, and you focus on one hat at a time. You only, so everyone in the room is on the yes hat. So everything's a yes. And then after that's done, you move on to the next hat and the emotional part, like what are the customers going to think about this? Or what's the reaction from the, the public or something like that? And you only focus on that. And it's actually a really good technique for streamlining a uh, and having a very productive meeting. I told this to my father once, and because uh, he uh, a lot of times you tell him an idea and he kind of just he'll look for the problems, which is also a hat. But I'm like, I'm like, Dad, put your yes hat on. That's all we're talking about here. So the the proper response to whatever I'm about to tell you is, can we put jetpacks on? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to come back to that in our second part of this segment. Um, mm. So that was that was a good reminder, Tom. It sounded like a corporate daycare. We were describing it. So it's in a meeting room. Everybody's got colorful hats. That's it's going to be snacks, maybe some drinks, a sippy cup. Definitely yeah. snacks, fidget mm-hmm. spinners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, toys. What's the second stage in your list after ideation? Oh, I thought you were asking Tom about the hats again. Uh, after ideation is prototyping. So, um, you know, you're making a thing. Right. Or you're pretending to make a thing. I don't know if they're actually making it yet i think you can i mean i would qualify i mean i do a lot of prototyping just in my head i mean as i'm falling asleep at night you know when i'm kind of in that twilight waking up in the morning i spend hours trying you know putting things together having them move having them you know interact with one another mechanically finding the problems thinking about okay that will work but how would you make it will it fit on the mill can you turn it sideways? You know, there's no way to drill those holes. So I'm, I'm definitely would qualify just actively thinking seriously about something as prototyping. I, in my, my mind, if you're prototyping something, you're physically trying to do it versus thinking about it for me is like troubleshooting the design. I'm, I'm trying to break it in my head before I actually start physically making it. 
that's how I think about it. I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong or you're wrong and I'm right. Mm -hmm. I'm just, it's, we have our own process. Everybody's, the whole thing is, it doesn't matter. Whatever your process is and it works for you, that's what you use. It doesn't matter what it's called. Mm -hmm. It just has to work. Right. This, this kind of brings me back to something that goes way beyond this conversation, which is a lot of people argue over who's right and what's the correct answer. Most people don't realize is there is almost always multiple correct answers. There's multiple correct things for almost any given problem, solution, or question. So the, the who's right is irrelevant. It's does it work. Yeah, I think that a lot of times on a team, especially if whoever has given it the most thought or has done the most prototyping even, is uh, it's really easy to grow tied to your ideas. They become attached. Because you have, you've, you've become really attached and you have eliminated a lot of things that, that you've written off. This won't work. You've put that down as a bad idea because it won't work. And so when someone else proposes something similar, you're, you're prone to saying, I already thought of that. But maybe you thought about it in a little different way or the way they were going to implement it was much easier. And the way you thought about implementing that particular thing, you ran into some snag and you wrote it off. Mm -hmm. But then they said, oh, we could just 3D print it or, you know, whatever that case may be. And you're like, oh, man, I was thinking, I, yeah, that we would have to, you know, make it some other way that would be very difficult. Um, or there's, you know, a process they know about that you're completely unaware of. And you've written something off because of your own ignorance. And there's an easier way to do it or a different approach. That's how I feel a lot of the time I'm listening to you, Tanda. It's like I'm trying to think of something. Then you come up with some whole like, oh, did you try spray welding? I'm like, what is spray welding? You know, like I've never heard of half the things you're talking about. I'm like, oh, that could be really useful. I didn't know that thing existed yet. So that's 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 like I totally relate to exactly that scenario where I'm like trying to figure something out with the, the limited knowledge I have. And then Tanda's like, oh, no, you could just use bubble gum. That would work. I think in the maker community, we all run into this problem where we keep talking to people that aren't in the maker community about our ideas, and it's just a big mistake. I feel like the mentality within this community is is so tuned that every idea is actually a good idea because everyone wants to talk about it. Everyone wants to jump on and just drive the idea until it's natural demise or natural creation. I run into this all the time, even just talking at like, you know, family parties or whatever. And I make the mistake of bringing up these, I mean, on the grand scope of things, like they're silly or stupid ideas. Like I'm making a marble machine doorbell right now, which serves really no purpose. But the, the things that go into making that and the brain activity required to make that is why I'm making it. I'm not making it because my doorbell doesn't work. Like that's foolish. It's not to be practical. That's the whole thing. It's the process. It is. And that transferable set of skills is also something that, you know, maybe you're hard-pressed to make something for a client or for a customer, and you've already solved that problem making your marble doorbell mm -hmm. machine. And I think people in the maker right? community are like, oh, man, I want to make a marble doorbell machine as well. And, they and you know, you said that, and I was already thinking of variants on 
how I would make a marble doorbell machine with complete disregard to the practicality of it or whether I need a doorbell or whether, you know. Exactly. And so I'm like. You went right there. Oh, man. And so it's like a conversation starter in in our community. Right. Whereas there are a lot of. And I think that's something that that our community can provide as kind of an educational tool. And then just by example, if nothing else, because I think there are a lot of kids out there um, and a lot of young people or a lot of people, maybe not even young, that haven't had the opportunity to be around people who just say, yeah, how would we do that? And and forget about whether it's practical or whatever. Just Just jump in with, yeah, how could I help you make that? And... I, I think as a kid, if you're told uh, that's silly or that's impractical or there's no way to do that, you can start to believe that and it can go, uh, you know, in a mm-hmm. bad direction. So I've been working with a kid from my church. Uh, I think he's 14. Pretty sure he's 14. I think he's a freshman in high school. And he is actually, he frightens me sometimes with how clever and smart he is. And I, like, I think I'm clever and smart sometimes. <laughs> and... He was given $200 from a family friend to make an automatic Frisbee thrower for their dog, which is, that's an incredible thing to do for a kid, by the way. If you've got 200 bucks to give a kid to make something that is completely impractical, do it. So he asked me for help and we've been working on it and we actually made a mostly successful Frisbee thrower. It only throws it about 10 feet, but it's successful and... It's just the troubleshooting around that was off the charts. Like everything was a problem and there was no reference. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess there were a couple on YouTube, but there's there was no reference. We had to figure it out and there's so many band-aids on that thing. And I told him, I was like, we just need to keep putting band-aids on until it's at a point where we can rebuild it completely and build it properly. Because now we learned what it's supposed to look like. That's a good approach, not not stopping because something's not quite working right. But if you can keep working and find that next problem down the road before you start over, yeah. that's always a good thing. Because as long as it works well enough to keep finding more problems, then you can keep finding them. If you start over and make that first thing perfect, then you find another problem. Yeah, difficult. Yeah, so we actually made this prototype to the point where we need to put more power into it. And in order to do that, we need to rebuild it because it's not strong enough and rigid enough. And that's kind of where we're at. So to wrap this up, you need a supportive community or a supportive team uh, whenever you're doing anything that has to do with uh, functional troubleshooting. Stepping outside that arena to people that don't have the same mindset is not going to be helpful. You've just entered the dealer's corner where bargains are currency. Prepare yourself. Tom, I know you've got something for the dealer's corner this week. I can feel it. Yeah, I got some free stuff. I put out on my personal Facebook page asking for old laptops, broken laptops, anything that looks like a laptop. And within 24 hours, 48 hours, I have six of them and there are more for me to get. But I'm harvesting parts and components and things and... This goes right back to our last conversation. Why? And it's just to have these tools and parts to maybe make something, do a project that teaches me something. Uh, I watched a video from DIY Perks. He has a video on how to like repurpose components from old laptops, 
which is really cool. He makes he'll he'll make like a media lap you know, he'll take the guts of a laptop that still works and turn it into a desktop PC or a media PC. You can take the screens. This is really cool. You can take the screens, go on eBay, and look up the the model of the screen itself. It's actually posted on the screen, not on the computer, and type in the model number and controller, and they sell control boards for these monitor screens with HDMI, VGA, DVI, like all the things. It even comes with a remote control. So I ordered one today for one of the HD monitors. It's only like 720p. Um, I forget what it is, 1366 by 768 or something weird like that. But I figured I could make a little portable TV using the batteries I got out of the laptops, throw a fire stick in there, And have a completely mobile TV that's, I don't know, 16 inches maybe. So I thought that was pretty cool and uh, everyone was willing to give up their old laptops. I'm like, why do people have all of these laptops for no reason? They don't even have hard drives in them anymore. They just can't part with them. It's hard to get rid of laptops. I agree. I've got one that works, one that sort of works, and one that doesn't work. You know what it might be? You spent so much money on it, and you still remember. Well, the one that sort of works is old, but it's it's got a PCI CMA slot. I think that's what the slot's called. And uh-huh. that is the slot that takes the memory cards from my filmmaking camera from when I was in film school. So I can just go right from the camera wow. to the laptop and download everything and then transfer it to a hard drive. So if I wanted to buy... A little like a, a dongle which has that slot that you could just plug into any laptop that's four hundred dollars so i'm like no nah, just i'll just keep this laptop that barely works but transfers everything super slow that's that's why you know keep right. it yeah <laughs> was was that all your your deal for the dealer's corner uh i did also get uh from my grandmother's house my grandmother passed a couple years ago and she has she had two twin craftmatic adjustable beds it's like a hospital bed Uh, but it was for you know regular consumers it wasn't an actual hospital bed but you know the feet went up and the and the head went up it used each one uses two massive linear actuators i mean the motors are like five inches uh, like a five inch diameter on them and there's a at least a foot of travel i i didn't extend it all the way but it's about a foot of travel and they have a 700 pound What's the word they use? Torque? Or I don't remember the word they use, but it's it, it can lift a bus. I mean, these things are huge and massive. And each one had a vibration motor on it. Remember vibrating oh, yeah. beds? They still do that. I turned it on while I was there, and it, like, shook the house <laughs> so loud. <laughs> so I just harvested those. I, I took all the, the good stuff out and threw out the mattresses and, and uh, bed frames. But each one, these are twin twin frames. Each one was like 150 pounds. It was incredibly overbuilt. I love overbuilt stuff. Did you get anything for free this week? As a matter of fact, I didn't pay for a single thing this week, but there was some trading involved. This week was a double feature. This ties in, if you remember me talking about my mystical powers of being able to attract things when I need them. I had a story several weeks ago about- That's called, uh, that's called Facebook Marketplace Algorithm. Don't give yourself too much credit. It's always listening. Okay, Tom. Okay, sure. That, that's what it is. Yeah, that's the <laughs> algorithm. Sure. 
It's the algorithm. So if you remember a couple weeks back, I had a dealer's corner where I picked up a 12-inch rotary table for $90. And it ended up being like 200-plus pounds. I couldn't move it. It couldn't work for me. And my exact words were, I need an 8-inch rotary table with an XY cross slide built into it, preferably a palm grin. Since I've had that listed for sale on Facebook Marketplace, I have had zero people reply to the ad. And then I lowered the price just to see if, you know, somebody would bite. And the first response I get is from these two guys who have a machine shop. And they said, hey, we could really use that. Would you like an eight-inch palm grin rotary table with an XY cross slide? <laughs> and I said, yes, I would. And they brought it to my garage, and we did an even swap. And uh, other than the fact that the, the, the palm grin is a little dirty, um, it works. It's in perfect condition, has the original paint, has the original slide decal on it. Uh, if I had a guess, I'd say it's like maybe uh, circa 1960s, maybe 1970s. I'm not, not 100% sure, but I'm going based off the color of the paint. And so that was, again, what I wanted and uh, effectively, I paid $90 for it. Those go for anywhere from 200 to $400, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. So that was the first part of the double feature. The second part was I got a visit from my buddy Juan from Old Timey Tools on Instagram, and we struck a bargain. We we're going to do some old-fashioned horse trading, and we swapped tools. So I'm going to give you the lowdown on what he got and then what I got. So... This goes back to the Emmert pattern maker's vise that I was talking about last week. I traded him the vise. Uh, I also traded him a heavy-duty industrial shelving unit. That's a, it's a double shelf with 14 shelves. I traded him a Stanley compass plane, which is the, the planes that you can adjust the curvature. So if you're like uh, planing inside a barrel or you're planing like a, a chair seat or something like that, it does curved planing. Then um, I found out that he needed a bandsaw fence, and I happened to have picked up a jet bandsaw fence system for next to nothing at a, a flea market. So I'm like, here, take this. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> we were talking about he saw some of my HDPE mallets, and he was talking about um, wanting a double-sided mallet. And I said, hey, I've got one that I made a while back out of a coffee leg. And so I gave him a HDPE on one side and leather on the other side, double-ended mallet that's made out of a coffee leg, coffee coffee table leg, uh, and then it's got a blueberry wood handle. So that was that was all the stuff that I traded him. <laughs> this is what he gave me. So the first thing that really kind of got the deal going was a 1966 four-inch. Wilton bullet vise with a swivel base in, I would say, maybe A, not A-plus condition, but A condition. Like, it is, like, really, really nice. There's definitely some signs of use, uh, and he even sandblasted it for me to get, like, 99% of the paint off of it. So I'm happy about that. Nice. Harkening back to a previous deal... He also gave me a brand new Milwaukee M12 battery charger for my die grinder that I bought tool only. So now I just need batteries. I got a charger for it. I still haven't gotten any batteries. But 
slowly, <laughs> little by little. I've got laptop batteries. Does that it, help you? It, it doesn't, but thanks for offering, Tom. You know what? You know what, though? Those 18650 batteries are in tools, too. It's it's the same. It's the same I battery. probably could use it if I had, like, empty M12 casings, battery casings, to put the batteries in. At this rate, it sounds like you're going to have those before you have full batteries. So well, if I only fun. knew somebody with a 3D printer that could print me those casings that would fit into the M12 armature. I'll let you know if I know anybody. Yeah, that, keep keep researching for me. <laughs> okay, so then um, I got 10 variously branded spoke shaves, a Sprunger benchtop drill press, a vintage AEG electric hand drill in the box with the paperwork in not quite mint condition, but pretty darn close. I got a Littlestown 7-inch by 3-inch undermount woodworking vise that's got a 6-inch depth, a 3-inch vintage Colombian vise that's uh, that's meant to be a swivel, but there's no swivel base, a 4-inch vintage static Morgan vise, a Craftsman 1-inch by 42-inch belt sander with an 8-inch disc on the side that needs a little repair, a home light, which is the Delta, it's the that's the homemaker version of Delta, eight inch disc sander body uh, that goes with a pulley motor. It was actually the kind that you added onto a home light table saw so that it ran off the same motor, so you could have a table saw and a disc sander together. He brought me six acro bin storage bins. These are like the little plastic bins that you put, uh, you know, like all your little parts and stuff in whenever you're taking something apart. I, I've got like so many of those and they're all full. Uh, a 25 piece Pittsburgh hex key set. This really cool forward and reverse switch made by Furnace. It's a KS12 and it looks like it's probably from the 50s. And it's the kind where it's like that Frankenstein lever where you throw it forward and you throw it backwards and it's got that nice kerchunky feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Pittsburgh magnetic parts tray. A Stanley, it's a Stanley plane. I don't know if it's a rabbit plane or a shoulder plane, but it's the kind where the blade goes right to the edge and it's uh, it's tiny, it's like four inches and very, very unique design and I love it, it's weird. Uh, a number four vintage hand plane that's made in the USA. It has a bunch of patents all over it, but no actual name, like I don't know who made it. He brought me two plastic uh, danger caution signs for hanging up around the shop. A Speed Air... 10-gallon oil air compressor that just needs a cleaning. Vintage cast iron 10-inch commercial grinder wheel covers. So the things that are almost always missing on all the grinders, I have these big, massive grinder wheel covers. Now all I need is a three-phase grinder to put them on. And lastly, a Stanley 11-inch to 18-inch extendable flathead screw starter with a magnetic end on the opposite end. So that one was kind of a, a little, um, <laughs> uh, my friend Ben Wilson, which is uh, Ben Makes KC on Instagram, had sent me as a surprise gift a screw starter that he found in a toolbox. And it's, I don't have any of those. And I'm always, you know, if you, if you do anything with old tools, they all have flathead screws. So a screw starter is like, you know, you got to have one. I've never seen one before in person. And then as soon as Juan found out that, I'd gotten one from Ben. He's like, oh, I've got one I could give you. <laughs> so now I've got an extendable one. So uh, Ben's is like maybe six inches, and this is like the supersized version of that made by Stanley. So that that was my dealer's corners. I got a bunch of stuff. 
I, I didn't pay for any of it. It was all trading this week. Nice. Very nice. Tanda took a ton of notes. I'm dying to know what 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 it was she was writing down. She's working while you're listening off your your deal. I I'm just I'm just yeah I'm just doodling. She's prototyping a new thing. Don't mind me. <laughs> All right, fine. Don't tell me. That's okay. My feelings aren't hurt. No, I, I designed I designed a small nuclear reactor while you were reading off the list. I was just. <laughs> Take, adding a few extra, you know, notes to my sketch. Oh, that—that that was my second guess. Never mind. Were those deals hot enough for you? You got a sizzling deal that's burning a hole in your pocket? Send it in. Maybe we'll read it on air. I'd like to point out that we haven't had anyone listening send in a deal for you know to be read on the dealer's corner. So, in case you're just not listening. Now I'm telling you, if you got a deal, send it in. We'd be happy to read it for you. Tanda, what's your personal history with functional troubleshooting? I, w- I would say that uh, I kind of grew up surrounded by, by it because we made or created a lot of the stuff around our, our shop and our property growing up. And we just kind of had this scrap pile of metal and, and various old tractor parts and implement parts and, and pipe and stuff laying around. You know, was, I kind of grew up in the oil field and people threw out a lot of, you know, unused pipe and, and things that were, you know, half rusted through and would require work. And, and so we had a pretty good little accumulation. And so anytime we needed a gate or some mechanism or to repair something, we rarely bought it. We went off to the scrap pile and figured out a way to make it. And so it was kind of how I grew up. But something Tom said really triggered a memory that I think goes well with the functional prototyping and what I was mentioning about kids. And he said his dad was, you know, often quick to put on that hat of this won't work. You know, like start start looking for problems in the idea. You know, you're just in the ideation stage and there's someone with that hat on that's like, I don't think that'll work because of this or because of that instead of proposing solutions. And so I got this idea that I was going to build a trailer to pull behind my ATV just out of things I could find around the around the house or around our shop. And I can remember my dad, you know, saying, you know, it's silly. It's, we don't, we don't have enough stuff. We don't have the right things. You know, why would we need a trailer anyway? You know, I mean, it it just kind of a very negative. And usually I would have just been like, yeah, you're probably right. You know, when you're young, you're just like, well, they probably know something I don't. But for whatever reason, I thought, well, I'm just going to try and, you know, I'll practice my welding and I'll you know, see how far I get. And for some reason, I just plunged ahead. And, and it was really interesting, because as I, as I built it, he'd go off to work, and he'd come back, and I'd have a little bit more welded up and a little bit more done. And I'd found a way to, uh, like, I made a hitch for it out of a, a ball bearing that was welded on top of a bolt. So essentially, it was a tiny little, like, like three quarter inch or one inch ball trailer hitch. And then I found a union, like a pipe union that you, you know, put two pipes together with. 
and one side of the union is like hollowed out and kind of curved that fit right over that. And so I welded that on and that became the, the top part of the hitch and so on. I just kept kind of building with what I had and getting to that next problem to solve. And, you know, over the course of the day, I'd figure out how to solve it. And at the very end, I had it all built and I needed one uh, bushing. I had used wheels off of an old farm implement of some kind. And one of them had a bushing in it and the other one didn't. And so I was, at that point, I was kind of stuck and I was just like filing something down in the vise. And my dad came in and was, and said, you know, I think, you know, if I, if I just take a piece of stock into work, I can maybe get one of the guys in the machine shop to turn that down. And that was, I mean, that was like winning a gold medal in the Olympics or something. I mean, that my dad actually went from saying this will never work to saying, you know, I can, I'll, I'll pull some strings to help you cross the finish line. And so that was a huge, you know, build for me, not because of what it was, but you know, it worked, it worked well. We actually hauled, you know, grapes out of our vineyard for years with it, pulling them behind the ATV and it was a useful build, but just the fact that it went from this will never work, you're wasting your time to having built something that kind of taught me to not listen to the naysayers or the people, you know, like we said earlier, outside of your, your like-minded community that say, oh, that's a silly idea or that will never work. And so it was kind of seminal in that regard. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of a few different things, but especially like today, like, like present day. I, I, I'm going to say this and I'm going to take it back. I don't listen to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is I do listen to people, but I listen from a standpoint of, how should I put this? I have detached listening. So I don't care what you're saying unless what you're saying actually sparks something. And not that it's not relevant, okay? Because most of the time when you're talking to somebody about something and they say something back, it's relevant to whatever it is you're talking about. But for the most part, people don't see things the way you see them. And the way to tell that they're saying something useful is all of a sudden, when you hear it, you'll go, oh, I should have thought of that. That's when you know, oh, that's a thing that I need to pay attention to. But most of the time, they're just talking to talk or they're trying to dissuade you from doing it because they can't do it. Well, if I can't do it, then he shouldn't do it either. That's no fair, you know? So it's it's almost like a jealousy thing. So I don't listen to anybody, but I listen to everyone, if you, you get what I'm saying. I do. My brother just moved to town a few months ago, and I've had to train him. We've been spending more time together, that's why I'm saying this. Uh, and I've had to train him. When I tell him something, his typical response was, why <laughs> and he would say it just like that why and no joke maybe two weeks ago i i don't even know what i told him it's not important uh it wasn't important then either i'm sure but i told him something and he goes what never mind <laughs> just, i'm like and i and i'm like yeah inside i'm going yes he finally figured it out mm-hmm. <laughs> like he finally just 
that's you know there is no why it the why i don't know it's like no let me just let me just exercise my brain and and i'll figure out that it's stupid like not that it's stupid i'll figure out the problems i'll figure out that it's not worth doing or i'll figure that but that's not the point the point is to think through this stuff you know some people read fiction for that reason i don't i think of stupid things and i take them to the nth degree so that brings up an interesting point sometimes stupid things which have no purpose are inherently cool and trendy and a prime example of that is fidget spinners okay <laughs> fidget that, that, that's got to be one of the stupidest things made in the last i don't know 30 years they're they're, they're completely worthless but they're trendy and so many variations of them have been made there's a lot of really really cool ones out there that do nothing but spin. So um, just because something's stupid doesn't mean it's irrelevant. That's that's the other thing to keep in mind. So sometimes, again, going back to what I was saying, people can't see what you see, and so because they can't understand it, they reject it. It's like they don't see the, they don't see the value in a marble machine doorbell. They don't see the the value because the value is not the finished product. The value is the journey. The value is the troubleshooting. No. <laughs> Uh, it's it's going through that process and figuring out what you need to do, ripping apart the doorbell, and learning what's inside it. And then I'm using the doorbell itself. Uh, I'm breaking it apart, but I'm using the doorbell itself to to push the ball down the track. And then I'm using the two metal plates that are the chimes for the ball to hit. Like it's I've recreated the doorbell, and I, I just. The exercise of going through that process is is the value. So there's two two parts to that. The first part is the process for you of actually creating, of troubleshooting it, and making it into a thing. The second part of it is at, see they they can't conceptualize what you're going through. So that's that's the first half that they don't get. But then the second half is you have this finished thing that you're now done with. That you're it now it, it serves no purpose for you because it's finished. But now when they come over and they see it, their response is going to be, oh, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. That's fantastic. Right. Or why? Why? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, all right. So that's a great question, though. When it's done and, and someone comes over and sees it, why is answered? It's a it's a it's a. Why do you have a cuckoo clock on your wall? Why do you have uh, art on your wall? Why do you have anything like that? The why is it's a conversation piece. Like, I want you to see it, smile, and that's the why. But that's not the answer when I come to you and say, hey, I want to make a marble machine doorbell. Like, that's not there yet. That that answer isn't there yet. Right. A lot of times that that's just to see if I can. Yeah. I want to see if I can do it. <laughs> That's a hundred percent. The challenge you put on yourself. I mean, the the I always have great snarky answers for anybody that looks at something I've done and, and asks me like why. I, I will t- like if if I made one of those doorbells and somebody came over and they're like, but why did you make that? And I'm like, just to confuse you. That's the only reason. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. or or, or yeah. I, I did it so that you can go home to your wife and complain to her. Because now you want one, and they don't exist anywhere except in my house. Or give, or just give them something to think about. Like I can't hear regular doorbells. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> I just I have this thing where I can't hear a regular doorbell. 
I would say that too. Yeah, any of those answers are valid, you know, yeah. all of them, you know, it's like one at a time. Right, right. So I don't have any great childhood stories about um, functional troubleshooting like Tanda does. I was trying to think back to when is my earliest example. And the, the thing I came up with was when I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, I had at one point 150 bonsai trees. And of course, you don't start out with 150. You start out with a couple, and then they multiply. And it got to the point where I didn't have enough space for them. Like, they were all over the yard, and I'm like, okay, I need to condense these things. They, they need to all go in, like, one spot so that I can water them properly. And so, the to me, the obvious thing to do was to make a stand, like a multi-tiered stand, almost like uh, like stadium like bleachers, you know, that, that would just hold all the potted plants because most of them were small. And so what I started with was, what, what do I need? You know, like what, like space requirements, like how big does it have to be? And so then I looked in my backyard, and I'm like, well, this area in between the fence and the stairs is six feet. So it can't be bigger than that. So there's my, my length constraint. The depth could be whatever I want because it was the yard. And um, I didn't want to make it higher than chest height because I'm going to have to lift up these plants. And some of them were big and heavy. There was a lot of small ones. but So like, like all the dimensions kind of came just based on whatever the constraints were. And then I realized, okay, well, four tiers would be ideal because I could fit a lot in a small space. So then I figured out I needed four tiers. And then that was my starting point. So basically, just imagine that you've got like four floating steps and you need to make them stay in in these like positions. So then how do you do that? So I work backwards from the steps. That that was my process was like, okay, this step needs to hang up here in the air. How do I do that? And I just kept working it backwards and the the thing I ended up doing was almost like making stairs. I took a piece of 2 by 12 and I made it go diagonally like on a 45 from the top shelf down to the bottom shelf and then I inset um, some some posts to hold up the shelves and and, so the, and then once I had that I'm like okay now I need to hold this all level and I just so basically I worked backwards I didn't start from the ground up I started from the air and then I just went all the way down and that weirdly enough brings me to the second thing that I that we actually were talking about prior to this episode. I have been building this Japanese tea house shed since 2018. And last summer, I spent pretty much the entire summer building the roof. And it was the most difficult thing I've ever built, period. I don't I don't have anything else to compare it to. There's a if you've if you've seen it, there's a main beam that is at the top that looks sort of like I don't even know what the shape would be called. It's got it's got some upsweeps at each end, but it's basically like just a, a block of wood that's maybe six feet long, and then at each end it goes up at like forty five degrees, almost sort of like a smiley face, I guess like a smile. I knew that I wanted that to be the top, and I wanted curved corners of wood like any you know like Japanese architecture like I don't know how those things go together but I'd seen them on you know movies and TV I knew what they were supposed to look like so I'm like uh, how hard could this be so the first thing I had to do was I had the mast I had the beam 
I didn't have anything else. So then I just started like putting like I put a table out there, then I put a box out there, then I put a bunch of wood out there, and I got the beam suspended up in the air because I didn't know how high it was supposed to be. I had no frame of reference for like the pitch of this roof or anything. On top of the fact that the roof was going to be curved and it, and it wasn't curved in like a it wasn't uniform. Like it was each section like each time it curved, the curve changed. So it was there was like no way to measure it. And I had to I, basically what I had to do was I had to take a piece of wood. I was using the four by four fence posts that you you know you can get anywhere. And I was I would cut it, I would measure an angle, I would cut the angle on each piece and then I would stick it together on the ground and then look at it and go, okay, does, does that look right? And I'm like, oh, nope. All right, well, let's let's go. Okay, that was five degrees. Let's try seven degrees. And then I would just cut it again. And I was, you know, of course, I was doing all these on the table saw, just you know, adjusting the blade angle and just cutting both sides and going, okay, no, that doesn't look right either. And I just kept experimenting until I got it to where it worked. But then it sort of French fried, and it was too much of an angle. So then I had to reverse one and go the opposite direction. So the point I'm making here is. This there was no way to reference any angles because it was f- literally floating in 3D space. It's not the not like I didn't have a wall to work against. I didn't have the ground to work against. It was just completely nonstop troubleshooting for like three and a half months, and it it didn't stop. Like once I got the frame built, building the panels to go on the frame. Also, every one of them had three different angles. And uh, I started by making like, like I've got the roof, I've got the frame, I got big giant pieces of cardboard, and I was cutting the cardboard to shape. So these things were all basically like weird trapezoid shapes. And once I got that, then I would cut it out in plywood. But then the problem was all of the edges of the plywood also had an angle. So if you just cut it straight, it didn't fit. So everything was, it was incredibly difficult. And, you know, I still haven't put out the YouTube video because the shed is still not done. But that is, to me, like, that's like the, 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 the essence of functional troubleshooting is being able to take this thing that you could see in your mind and make it work, even if it doesn't make any kind of real sense. Like, there was no – like, everybody I told that I was doing this, they're like, but why? <laughs> why are you doing that? <laughs> And my answer was the same. Why not? Well, I, well I, I, everybody that asked me that was was pretty much in my yard, and I'm like, okay, look at look at my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Okay, look at his shed. What does it look like? It looks like a doghouse. Okay, now look at the neighbor next to me. What does his shed look like? It looks like a doghouse. They all look like doghouses. I don't want a doghouse in my backyard. I want something that looks beautiful. That's going to inspire people. I want the best looking shed. In the entire town, my town is small. It's only eight hundred people, but still, I want something that looks nice. Shooting for the stars. Yeah. So you built a Japanese dog house. Yes. That's yes. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. For big dogs. I'm gonna Google Japanese dog house. But I think that as you were as you were staying, you know, kind of going through those steps, I think that's really kind of the defining thing of what we're talking about. Is you start with a vision of the end and work backwards. Yeah. And, and and so if you want to plan or you want to be able to either purchase the things you need or start with a um, 
you know, step one, step two, step three, then, then it may be really difficult to, to do that. But if you're okay with, here's what step 20 looks like, what would step 19 have looked like to get there? What would step 18 have looked like to get to step 19 and work, work your way backwards? Then, you know, you're probably, you know, more in tuned with, you know, the typical maker or, or tinkerer. Tom is just cracking up over there. I dying to know sure. what he found. I'm not sure. He's like, he's like, <laughs> like, I actually, I actually googled Japanese doghouse, and basically your shed popped up. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Wait a minute. I'm like that, that picture actually is from uh, PJ's Instagram. I'm like, uh, yeah, one of the pictures. I'm like, that's PJ's shed. <laughs> Well, that's pretty much it. <laughs> oh, I should have pointed out when when I researched this before I started making anything, I found nothing. There was nothing on how to make a Japanese roof. Well, you, that's because you weren't googling Japanese doghouse. You have to use uh, NordVPN and change your location to Japan, and then just and then just type in shed, and you would have gotten information. Probably, yeah. In Japanese. In Japanese. The only thing I could find was like those giant temples. That, that are like the size of a football field. And it didn't tell you how to make the temple. It just showed you pictures. So it's like, it yeah. doesn't yeah. help. And I halfway think, by the way, that those uh, those giant temples, I think that the, the, the corners, like those the beams that hold up that centerpiece, I think that those are just logs, like gigantic trees that they put up there while they were alive, and it just bent naturally. That's That's what I think those are. <laughs> exactly the same <laughs> on all four curled. corners. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I, I don't th- – because I was going bananas trying to do this thing. They, they are amazing if you get the chance to, to see one. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy loops and stuff. Hello, this is Chet down at Johnson's Hardware. Are you having trouble with tribbles in your backyard? There's been a local infestation across the entire country in small towns. Fear not. Johnson's Hardware now carries the Tribble Troubleshooter. That's right. You will have trouble with Tribbles no more. We have a proprietary Tribble Dribble Goo that you load into the gun, shoot the Tribbles, and they get all sticky. And then they think about what they're doing, and then they leave you alone. That's what everybody wants, right? No one wants to be bothered by Tribbles. So come on down to Johnson's Hardware and pick up your Tribble Troubleshooter. Act now, and we'll add in a bonus Tribble just for your Tribble for only $14.95, because we don't want them either. Patreon.com forward slash Makerskills. What the heck, Nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right, this is going to be interesting. It's time for crossbreeding. Tanda, what skill goes well with functional troubleshooting. Well, I wouldn't have said this at the beginning of the show, but I think it's uh, just doing your own thing and, and tuning people out. So the the ability to uh, I persevere, I think, is goes well. So perseverance is what I'm going to say is a skill that goes well with uh, functional troubleshooting. Because quite often when you're trying to make something out of thin air, you you hit that point where you start to believe those naysayers and think it can't be done or or you can't come up with a way to to do it and sometimes you have to take a little break or take a different approach or sleep on it and keep going so i'm going to say perseverance goes well with functional troubleshooting 
That's that's fantastic because when I can't do it, I just ask Tom to do it. What? <laughs> Tom, what is your <laughs> what? If you say design, PJ, uh, I'm just going to hang up. And <laughs> what skill goes well with uh, with with functional troubleshooting, Tom? Uh, design, actually. Uh, <laughs> you son of a. Uh, specifically, uh, troubleshooting goes with everything, but I'm going to pick on design because especially 3D, uh, what do you call this? Like CAD work. Using Fusion 360, when you're trying to draw something, you need to isolate the issue or isolate the critical dimension. And like troubleshooting where it's a very systematic process, you need to determine which dimension is most important and then everything works off of that now there might be several of those dimensions within a project that are are critical but not all of them you need that one where the thing goes in the thing and that needs to be this size and therefore the thing that that goes in needs to be a certain size so i think i think design uh there's a lot of troubleshooting while you're designing too with all kinds of restrictions and constraints that the world puts on you or you put it on yourself because it needs to fit in your pocket instead of a bag or instead of a whatever. So I think I think design is a good fit. What about you, PJ? Well, now I don't have an answer. I know. That's why I, I, I stole yours. I mocked you <laughs> and then literally said design just so that, I, yeah, it was a clever choice. No, I got an thing. answer. I always have an answer. Remember, there's always more than one correct answer. That's not true. Top-down construction. Think about it, Tom. I, the gears are turning. I can see the smoke coming out of his ears, even though they're plugged with AirPods. I, I think you I think you just made up a term. Top-down construction is what I just described in both my examples. When I, when I, whenever I have to use functional troubleshooting, I literally am starting at the top and working backwards. I'm, I'm producing something the opposite of how you would normally build anything else. So that is where that process gears into my thinking, top-down construction. And I don't know if that's a real term or not, but that's the skill set that I would associate it with. It's not. I just Googled it. Well, considering that I've seen your tea house and you built the roof before you built the walls, I think top-down construction is your uh, is your forte. To me, it just makes the most sense. I mean, you know, once you have the roof on, everything else just kind of falls into place, right? Well, the, the roof would certainly fall. Falls into place, yeah. If you yeah, that, that's my point, see? You, you get it. You guys get it. Rant requests. All right, kids. We put the question out there, and you guys answered. We asked for rant requests, and we got three people, three brave souls, that were willing to go out on a limb and ask us to talk about stuff that we may or may not know anything about. Universal Woodworker asked us to talk about three-phase power. <clears throat> well, I know that three-phase power exists, and beyond that, I know very little. <laughs> Hold on, I'm googling it. We can just edit this out, right? <laughs> well, you, you have your you can have your power in a solid, a liquid, or a gas, and so those are the three phases. Yes. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. So, like a law. So, yeah, you can you can power with wood. Or you can power with gasoline or natural gas. And so those are your three different phases of power. And then, of course, there's plasma, but that's a, that's a different phase. I've always wondered, Tanda, because gasoline has those fumes that come off of it. Is that where natural gas comes from? Mm, not really. But, no. 
But sort of. I mean, I mean, if you if whatever's coming out of the ground ha- has a lot of different, uh, I don't know, com- combinations of carbon and hydrogen and creating methane. And so if you put it through a, a distillery, if you will, then you're going to get different fractions off. So you're going to get a really high end that's natural gas, and then you're going to get distillates that are liquid. So, well, the, the natural gas I'm used to is the kind that's made by Bush's baked beans. So I don't know anything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same stuff. Cow farts, cow burps, yeah. Bush's baked beans. They're all the same. Three-phase power, I, I bought my shop. What kind of drew me to this shop was that it already had three-phase, or so I thought. And I thought, well, there's a really big sticking point that'll be nice to just have done. And so there was already a transformer. There was already a drop. Um, to the back of the building. And then when I got my mill and actually needed three-phase, I discovered that uh, the riser where the three-phase was tied was no longer, you know, within code. The meter was no longer within code. And I now required a new box inside because my old one was not to code. And so... The the cables coming from the transformer or the wires coming from the transformer to the building were about all I had that, uh, you know, so this great idea of this already has three phase, I'll be ready to just wire it in. And the only thing I kept and didn't have to build new, build out again, were literally the wires dropping down from the transformer. I, I did a lot of research on this on three phase before we started and the wiring, just the wires... That's where most of the expense is. Well, yeah. If you're way, like, if you're like, you know, like Jimmy or somebody where your shop is a long ways from from the power lines, that can be really expensive. There was a guy on a forum that said for him to get three phase was the quote he got from the power company was $40,000. And that was to run it from the street to where his, I think he needed something like 250 feet run. And I had to put in poles and everything else. Uh, the one thing I did find that was kind of interesting, which could be a savings uh, if you need three-phase power run. Uh, I can't remember which state this guy was in. I want to say it was New Jersey. But he, the electric company made him a deal where they actually put the meter at the road. So they ran the line, the power line, from the pole to a meter that was right at the street. And then they left a spool of three-phase wire on his property. And he got a trencher, dug the trench himself, and then pulled the wire off the spool. And apparently the way this wire is marked is it's in feet, like it's marked per foot. So the amount you pull off, they can like tell how many feet of wire you have. And so he ran the wire himself and um, he you know, he put it underground so they didn't have to put a, a pole in. It was underground. And I guess he had uh, an electrician that, you know, hooked it up to his barn or wherever he was running it to. And it ended up only costing him, I think, like two or $3,000 instead of like $8,000. So he was able to save a bunch of money by doing the work himself and putting it underground. So that's, if you need three-phase, that's like an option if you're not going to get like a phase converter or, or something else. Yeah, it's certainly uh, uh, something that if you can do it yourself, you can save save a lot. But then where there's code involved and all, you you can run into some problems. I had an electrician friend who basically just said, I'll pull the permit 
you can do, if you want, do all of the work. I'll come by and inspect it and make sure that it's up to what I would have done. And then, you know, we'll call the inspectors and get it. And I was able to save. I originally got it quoted by by an electrician and it was, I think it was between six and seven thousand dollars for what I just for what I needed done, and I was able to do it for about fifteen hundred. From a practical standpoint, most of us do not have three phase and never will. And it, you and for a home shop especially, it doesn't make sense um, unless it's already there, obviously. But I uh, I got a mill that is still not hooked up, but you can use a VFD, a variable frequency drive. It's a little box that takes in uh let's just keep it simple it takes in 220 volts and it outputs 220 volts of three phase so single phase 220 in three phase 220 out and i won't even try to explain how that works because well i I don't truly know but it mimics three phase or it creates three phase and you can run your equipment on that and i will tell you this it is rather simple once you do it the first time once i figured out how the the language of the vfd worked or the one that i got worked and how uh, to program it it was a little confusing it didn't wasn't very clear and there wasn't much help on the internet but i was able to get through it and once i figured it out i bought another one for my lathe and i put my lathe on three phase also because the variable drive is just such a luxury so don't be afraid to buy a three-phase table saw or whatever you got. It's going to give you usually better power output, and it's usually a bigger motor. Uh, these are all generalizations, but you can a VFD is not the end of the world. It's it's very doable and it's very affordable. I mean, mine uh, one horsepower uh, a one horsepower VFD uh, I think was 140 bucks. That's very cheap. Yeah, there there's a lot of utility for small motors. Once you get up to larger machines, then the VFDs uh, start to start to get really expensive because of the electronics, because they're basically converting the power to DC and and then converting it back to AC in three phases. And so the power electronics and you know to cool them and to put in the bigger transistors and everything to handle lots of power, they start they really start to ramp up in expense, but a kind of a friend of the maker community, or you see a lot of people using them are the uh, American rotary uh, phase converters, which are basically driving a motor with two phases, spinning a motor with two phases, which is driving a generator essentially. That's a three phase generator all in one box, just to oversimplify. And that's another alternative for getting three phase with a little higher power, you know, at some point, you know, I don't know where, where it's at, but maybe five horse or something, the VFDs start to get real expensive. And then there's kind of this crossing point where like a rotary phase converter makes more sense to get three phase from two phase. The other thing is, and then we're going to move on to the next question. Variable frequency drives are not an equal output compared to three phase or phase converter. And the easiest way to explain this is if you have a one horsepower motor and you're running a VFD, you're actually only getting a third horsepower because it's converting the phase. It's tricking the motor into working by creating the three phases, but you're only putting one phase in. So it'll run the motor, 
but it's it's at, there's a cost savings. You know, you're you're not getting the full power out of that motor, and VFDs will also shorten the lifespan of the motor versus actually running it off full on three phase. So now I'm taking this from a lot of people that are way smarter than me. So if it doesn't sound right, you're free to challenge it. But that's what I've been led to believe. I don't believe anything. I haven't heard those things quite that way. Like I said, people smarter than me. Yeah, the, the with the uh, VFDs, your windings on your motor are going to tend to get get hotter. They're going to need heavier windings. So if you buy a motor that is for VFD or VFD rated motor, it's going to have heavier windings. Um, if you use a VFD on a motor that is not made for being run with a VFD, then it is going to, to wear on that motor because it's going to run much hotter than it, than it was built to run. So the insulation rating on the windings and everything is probably being exceeded if you're running it at its rated power with a VFD. What she said. Our second suggestion comes from Ben Makes KC, my buddy Ben. He wants us to talk about welding wire. And um, I have some welding wire. It's in my MIG welder. And it, you know, it melts stuff. I don't know what else to say. I think welding, welding wire is just kind of silly. I mean, you should just get new wire. I mean, if you need to weld together pieces yeah, of wire to make even... your wire longer, then that's, uh, you know. I mean, soldering maybe. But if you're welding, welding wire... You know, even if it's bailing wire or something, then... I mean, if it's all you got, do it, but it's just not worth welding wire. I'm more of a solderer myself. Yeah, welding wire is is useful to have around um, for things other than welding. Not flux core. Flux core is kind of brittle and... And breaks, but oh man, that's what I have. I find myself I find myself uh, using TIG rod and and gas welding wire and and even MIG wire sometimes to hang things for powder coating or whatever. It's just it's nearby, and I, I turn it into hooks or punch it. Use it to punch through wa- drywall to find where something would come out on the other side of the wall. It's a nice stiff piece of wire that that works well. Tom, you got anything to add? No, because the only welding I do is at the blacksmith, and he buys it and puts it in the machine, and I just pull the trigger. And when it doesn't work, I go, why does it not work? And then he fixes it. I bought wire at the at a welding supply recently to replace the wire that I had, which I think I just bought at one of the big box stores. And I think it's a little better. I mean, I'm not I'm not good enough to to say one or the other, but I think that they're they're certainly even you know for the same diameter MIG wire, and I use. Uh, solid. Uh, I don't usually use flux core because I weld in the shop and I, I do have my kind of fume hood, but it's nice to have a little less smoke and it seems to work a little bit better. So I think it is a little higher grade of wire, even though it's like an 030, you know, same, same wire, but it seems to work better than the big box store brand that I got before. All right. So our last Rent request comes from Wildman Tech on Instagram. He wants us to talk about linear bearings. Linear Wildman, hey Marsh, linear bearings. I mean, linear bearings are cool. I've never actually used any. I think the only thing that I'm not even sure there's linear bearings in there, but I think probably the most common access to the maker community would be a sliding miter saw as linear bearings. Tom's pointing at his 3D printer. That doesn't have linear bearings, Tom. That's got regular ball bearings. No, it's got lin- it has linear bearings. No, it's got bushings. It probably up and down yeah. on the sides of the well, rails. Mine doesn't. But yeah, the um even your printer, it probably uses bushings. Bushings. 
linear yeah. bushings. Well, they're, they're they're bearings. I mean, if you have a if you have a rod that a that a bushing is sliding along linearly, that's a pretty common. In fact, a, a good hacker maker place to find them are old printers and plotters. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Uh, yeah, and you're you're right. It is a bearing. It's not a ball bearing. It's not a linear ball bearing. It's a linear bearing, though. Forget that there's two different things. Yeah, a lot of I've seen a lot of people uh, upgrading 3D printers by putting the uh, linear rails and ball bearing, uh, you know, bearing cage rails that run on the linear slides to mm-hmm. make their 3D printers a little more rigid and a little little better. I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the uh, the printers that I've seen them upgrading, but apparently it's a it's a common thing on some printers to make them run a little bit better. I think that with the linear bearings, you actually have more contact surface because of the, the the direction. Like because you're going in a straight line, if you're if you're just like Tom's printer is set up with basically let's simplify it and say skateboard bearings. They're round bearings that are traveling like a wheel, and when you have that, there's only a small point of contact. It's wherever the wheel is touching the rail. But with linear bearings. You're, I know that there's three of them, Tom. He's holding up three fingers. Right, three points of contact. Right, but there are three pin points. Yep. They're, they're, they're like just a spot. Whereas if you had three linear bearings, the contact is the full, like if, if a linear bearing is, is an inch or two inches long, you've got contact that entire inch or two inches. So it's, it's a much more stable support system than using a, a round bearing to do the same job. And that's where the rigidity comes in. My other printer uses linear bearings. It has two two rods that the hot end slides back and forth on uh, via a belt drive and a stepper motor. But, uh, and you just keep them oiled. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, uh, for the application of a 3D printer, I don't notice a difference. I mean, this printer is significantly better than the one with linear bearings, but that has nothing to do with the bearings. You know, that has nothing to do with that mechanism there. Well, and there are a lot of linear bearings that aren't aren't ball bearings at all. I mean, they're recirculating ball linear bearings, and then there are bearings that if you're not moving something very fast that are just a, like, permanently lubricated plastic surrounding a rail that can slide up and down that rail for many, many years and not need lubrication I guess is kind of a leader in that in that market, and they make some really cool, you know, permanently lubricated plastics that slide on hard anodized rails, and they're relatively trouble-free, and they're you know something that you can just make and and forget. But making linear bearings is is an option as well. I mean, it's hard to know, you know, without without knowing the context. But I made a a cabinet lift. A couple years ago, and I I remember that yeah, and I just used uh, skateboard bearings and just compressed them along a piece of angle iron, you know, to make a a set of linear bearings on either side, and you know it it functioned and got us through the prototype and a trade show and and got us going with uh, actually manufacturing a a product. In fact, I've got two more to make in the next. Uh, three or four weeks of the newer version. I don't know why, but I feel like saying this because we're talking about bearings. And I've seen people do this before. If you have regular ball bearings, the round skateboard kind, you can't put pressure on those beyond the tolerance 
uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying this correctly. You have to treat those like a, a, a hollow wheel. That's not coming out right either. Okay, I saw somebody use a bearing where they were applying pressure because they were trying to use it to bend something. And they were making a prototype, and what happening was the bearing kept shattering. And the reason that happens is because you basically have two donuts and then a bunch of little balls in between. So it's not a solid steel uh, wheel. So you can't apply mm -hmm. pressure like that. Ball bearings are meant to just spin like a wheel. They're not meant to take huge amounts of pressure. And if you put them under huge amounts of pressure, they're going to crack because that's not the way that they're designed to work. So just keep that in mind. If you need something to take a lot of pressure and spin, you might need like, and, and it needs to be like, you know, like Tanda was saying, sort of lubricated. You, you might need bronze. You might need to make like a bronze wheel that'll have sort of a, a, a rolling and lubricated, like self-lubricating property to it. I know this is kind of coming out of left field, but I just, I've seen more than one person do that where they're applying pressure and they just keep snapping the bearings and they don't understand why it's doing that. Yeah, I mean, certainly a bushing might be more appropriate in that application or, you know, a bearing that's actually solid. Or maybe a needle bearing, something that's made for ne I was just axial, say needle bearing. you know, loads or radial loads, I guess I should say. Needle bearings are definitely uh, a lot, lot sturdier, I'll give you that. I like them. I've never had a use for one, but I've always like, like they're like on my radar, like, oh, I got to make something someday. Something's going to have needle bearings in it. I've taken them out of things. Well, and sometimes you see people, you know, using a bearing to carry a lot of weight axially as well when they should be using a thrust bearing, and then they push the bearing apart. Thrust bearing is, is a perfect example, but going the wrong direction now that I'm thinking about it. Never mind. Well, that yeah, that kind of gets away from being a linear bearing, yeah. but... Uh, you know, even even just uh, using, depending on the application, just using a Teflon or a machinable plastic that's really slippery, and you know, building a building a housing, a lot of places now for sliding, you know, heavy loads that works really well. If it's not something that's moving really fast, that'll take a lot of lot of pressure and carry a lot of weight, and maybe you just have a piece of Delrin built in between for it to ride on. Now I'm thinking about maybe I can put some linear bearings into my vice design for the vice that I'm making, just because. Just because why not? Well, there you go. You could just you could just wrap the back of the vice in. I mean, not wrap it, but you could put uh, Delrin blocks in the back of the vice. So when you're when the screw's moving it in and out, it it slides nicely. Mm, that sounds good. And then the first time you weld on it, it'll smell funny and burn up. Well, we won't talk about that. All right, boys and girls, it's time for Short and Sweet. Tom, do you have anything you want to say to wrap up the show? Sure. Go watch DIY Perks. He's a very large channel, but he's got some cool stuff. Uh, it might just get your... It's the kind of stuff that's kind of like low-hanging fruit for the you know common population of YouTubers or YouTube uh, watchers, but it makes you start... It, it gives you things to think about, so go check him out. All right. That sounds like a good idea. Tanda, you got anything for Short and Sweet? Oh, I would just say that, uh, you know, if you're just looking for ideas or different approaches, that uh, the company IGUS, I-G-U-S, has some interesting bearing designs. They're kind of plastic specialists, and they have all kinds of uh, plastic bearings that you wouldn't think could be made out of, you know, for applications you wouldn't think you could use plastic. 
and uh, American Rotary. If you haven't ever heard of them, you might go check that out if you're looking for three phase in your shop. That's a that's a good. Like I want three phase eventually, someday. Not right now. I don't have room. As for me, I want to remind everyone that a Japanese tea house shed is not a doghouse. Don't get the two confused. Yes, it is. Despite what Tom says. Yes, it is. For a big dog. Yes, it is. I mean, a big dog could live in your tea house. You'd need like a dog that like like one of Zool's dogs from like the Ghostbusters. That dog would fit. That would be a doghouse for sure because that dog was like the size of a horse. Any house can be a doghouse if you try hard enough. What about a birdhouse? A, yeah. Totally. Definitely. Small dog? What if it's a really big bird? Any house could be a birdhouse. I had a bird in my house the other day in my garage. Slash birdhouse. It's a birdhouse. So now you live in a birdhouse. Right. Basically. <laughs> I mean, the bird left, so technically... You live in an abandoned birdhouse? Technically. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife is going to love that. That's awesome. Yes. Yes, I do. You know, Tom makes some pretty cool things for living in an abandoned birdhouse. <laughs> That's the... I'm changing my YouTube ch- channel right now. Abandoned birdhouse sh- workshop. I don't know, does, that, does that drive your property value up or down? I can't tell. God, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Just don't tell Zillow. We'll be fine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram, and you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, what if this thing happens? You know, what would you do? We got a new segment for you guys. And this comes from me watching a TV show on Netflix called Sweet Home. This sparked an idea. So if you've not seen the show, it's set in South Korea. And it's about a bunch of people living in an apartment building. And there is a monster apocalypse where apparently the town is cursed and people just start randomly turning into monsters. Sort of like a zombie apocalypse, but you know, with no actual basis because, you know, all zombie apocalypses have a basis. So my thought was, what if there was a monster apocalypse right now from a maker perspective? How like how prepared are you for that? Like what what would you do? What would you be able to make to, you know, allow yourself to survive or to, to, you know, to to get through the initial wave of monsters attacking your house or you know how would you be able to leave the house you know so this is what we're going to talk about and and i i want to stress that this is not like an imaginary thing as far as you know we're not making laser guns because none of us have the ability to make laser guns we're making things that we can actually make i have something that i'll, I'll go last because mine mine's a little bit more in depth i'll let tanda go first if you had monsters like right now you're in your shop tanda so you have the ability, you have like all the toys. You could make pretty much whatever you wanted. 
what would be your go-to if you knew that you had to leave the shop to go and get food? And what would you take with you? Like, what could you make that would help you? What could I make? I, I mean, I would just take a gun with me, but I, I suppose I wouldn't, I wouldn't make one because I just, I just grab one. But you're not supposed to talk about having guns, right? If you have a gun, that's good. Yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah, that, that, that's would be the go-to for, for monsters unless they have some particular uh, aspect that uh, is, is impervious to such a thing. But there are lots of big, uh, you know, sticks and bars and wrenches and stuff around. Lots of sharp things that are used for, you know, in the shop regularly. You know, great big, uh, you know, like floor chisels and things like that that would would possibly be useful depending on the kind of monster that you're dealing with. Okay, so let, let me give you a little background. There, there's not one standard monster. Okay, there's all different kinds. Like there, there's. There's one that's literally a dude standing on the ground with like a normal body, and then his neck becomes a giant tentacle with two eyes and a mouth. And it goes up like 15 stories to go into somebody's window to grab them. So it's like, that. it's just like totally bizarre. Then you got another guy that basically looks like the wolf man, you know. Uh, there was one guy that as he was changing into a monster, got his head cut in half. So he's basically just got a mouth, a nose, and one ear. He's still alive, okay? Still alive. I think for that guy, I just use a mirror. Yeah. Can't see anything. <laughs> huh? Can't see anything. He's got no eyes. He's got a mouth and an ear. Oh, wow. And, and a nose. He has no eyes, so he can't see. So he actually walks around saying, "I can't." So I couldn't. I couldn't hold up a mirror. No. I'd have to just make fun of him from his one good ear side. So there's, I mean, like a gun might work for some of them, but obviously for this guy, uh, he, he's got half a brain literally still walking around. Well, I know lots of those guys. Well, yeah, we all do, don't we? They're real. But you, you, you basically cited like a bunch of stuff that's laying around the shop. But what would you make? Like if you had to make something, like, uh, instead of just like loading up your tool belt, is there anything that you could make that would help more than just grabbing like a sharp chisel? Oh, I'd probably, you know, I'd probably make like an air cannon. I mean, I've got compressed air throughout the shop. I've got some PVC pipe and various pipe that I could just, uh, you know, make a wadding in the back of it and then shoot chisels or shoot nails or, you know, any kind of projectile. That'd make a pretty good uh, quick projectile launcher to keep me, keep a distance from the monsters and and maybe choose something that was not uh, was not a gun. And that'd be that'd be quick and easy to make, an air cannon. So that brings up an interesting question, because I, I think of your shop as sort of like the machinist Candyland. Do you have the ability there to make like a rail gun? I yeah, I could probably make it. I don't have uh, any really big power supplies or capacitors, which might uh, kind of preclude me from making a very uh, a very useful monster killing rail gun. Hmm. But I could nick one of them with a paper clip and give it a nasty infection. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it might die later. And on that note, we're going to go to Tom. If I'm going down, you're going down eventually yeah. with me. Tom, what about you? What do you what do you got there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I would hunker I would I would shelter in place first. Like secure the home. I'd board it up. I'd I'd do whatever it took to just like keep them out, mm -hmm. right? Fighting is a bad idea. Fighting is just a bad idea. You're you are outmatched with any 
unless it's the Walking Dead zombies, which I don't know how they keep sneaking up on people, but you are you are outmatched when it comes to monsters. So don't let them in. Don't let them know you're there. Don't like just hide, right? Now I understand you eventually have to go out. And I think some of the answer would depend highly on exactly what kind of monster you're facing. But I think just like lots of sharp objects sticking out of a vehicle would be the first step. And then the second step would be try to find somebody else that's also going out and just be more prepared than them. And and if anything else, shoot them <laughs> and the monster will get them. It goes back to that joke about the, you know, the guy that's lacing up his tennis shoes with his friend and he's like, you can't outrun a bear. And he's like, I don't have to outrun a bear. I just have to outrun you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, at this point, like the world is, is, is gone. Like we're in trouble. Like extreme measures need to be taken and murder is no longer outlawed because there is no law. So I'm just saying you know, things change very quickly in a monster apocalypse. I kind of jumped over that first part because I'm in a metal shop building with one window and it has expanded metal over it. I'm, I'm kind of already there in terms of the uh, hunkering down in my in my bunker. And then the fence has uh, mm. barbed wire on top. I, I do have to say we lived in Illinois for a while and we had a tornado warning. And because we weren't from there, we freaked out. Although a tornado did come through about a mile from our house, so it was justified. But I took everybody downstairs. We had a split level. We went into the crawl space, which is probably like five feet high. And I'm thinking, like, what do I need to bring down there? And I didn't bring food. I didn't bring water. I brought a sawzall and a bunch of power tools because I'm like, if our house gets crippled, we got to cut our way out. Nobody's finding us. Like, we need to cut our way out. And I thought that was pretty pretty solid thinking on that note on, on the the tornado note when i moved to memphis tennessee uh, I, I had been living in new jersey for all my life so i didn't know anything about tornadoes oh i'm so yeah, sorry I know, for you I know. so i go down there and the first year i'm there there is a tornado season for people that don't know after like right at the ending of winter beginning of spring is tornado season and um, they've been ramping up over the years but anyway the first year I'm there, the tornado season starts up, and it's all over the news, and they basically act like the world is ending. And they, they're like, if you're in your house, get in the bathroom and cover yourself with a mattress. If you're in a trailer, go hide in a ditch, which I always found hilarious. If you're in a mobile home, they tell you to go lay down in a ditch, which I, I don't know anybody that actually did that, but I found it hilarious. So the first time that this happened, that's exactly what I did. At the time, I was married. We had a cat and a dog. And so it was me, my wife, the cat, and the dog with a mattress over us in the tub in the middle of this apartment. And then nothing happened. Like there was the the (laughs) building didn't get hit. There was nowhere near us. And I was like, oh, that was a bunch of bullshit. I'm never doing that again. And I lived in Memphis for 10 years, and I never did anything anything literally i never hid i never got in a crawl space i like i when they said there's a tornado coming i would go outside and look at the sky i'm like yeah it looks like it's on the way and then i go back in the house i slept straight through tornadoes like i i just i i'm like hey if it's gonna come get me it's gonna come get me whatever you know i'm going to bed i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna sleep in my tub tonight 
And the the worst thing that ever happened actually was not a tornado. There was, they called it a hundred year storm. Uh, now there's an actual name for it. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a straight wind storm that hit Memphis. And tornadoes are able to be detected because they have, it's, I can't remember what it's called. It's a curved wind pattern. You know, it, it makes, it, it's curvy, curvy wind. I don't know, it's tornado wind. Uh, I think it's called toroidal wind. Anyway, anyway they detect that and they know that a tornado is going to start or it's on the way or whatever. With straight wind, there's no detection. There's no way to know that a straight wind storm is coming for you until it's like right on top of you. So I think now they actually have a warning system, but back then they did not. Um, this was around 2004, I believe. And I slept straight through it. Didn't phase me one bit because I've been sleeping through storms the entire time I'm down there. And I go outside and it looked like a demilitarized zone. I, I'd never seen anything like it. It was way worse than a tornado. There were trees that were, I want to say, maybe six feet across, like a big, big tree. And it looked like somebody had grabbed the bottom and then grabbed the top of the tree. Like imagine two fists that grabbed the bottom and the top and then just shoved their fists together. And the trees exploded. They splintered and exploded outwards. Like they fell down straight down and then exploded outward. It was like the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. And I didn't understand how straight wind even did, did that. Uh, but my house, I had a branch fall down and it knocked down a beam inside my garage. Didn't mess with the roof, but somehow a beam got knocked down inside the garage. And that was it. That was like the, the total, the sum total of my damage didn't knock any of my bonsai trees over, nothing. Um, and two streets over, a gigantic tree fell on a house and split it right down the middle. So, you know, it's just, it was totally bizarre. But Yeah, there was a lot of uh, footage from the derecho earlier this year in Iowa that was like that, where there were just areas that were looked like a war zone and two blocks away, no damage. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. Very weird. So let me get to my my scenario. And I have a little bit of an advantage because I sort of thought about this happening years ago. For those of you that don't know, uh, I'm a trained filmmaker. I went to film school and I've written lots of feature films and TV series, none of which have been made, but I wrote them. And when The Walking Dead was really, really hot and everybody was talking about it and watching it, I mean, they're still watching it, but I decided that I wanted to make my version of a zombie movie. And when, as a writer, when you're trying to figure out how to create something, you have to put yourself in that scenario. So I imagined, okay, I'm in Pennsylvania in the mountains. There was a zombie apocalypse right now, which is very similar to a monster apocalypse. How, what, like, where would I be as far as like defending myself? You know, how, how, how prepared am I? And I mean, normally we keep about, I'd say three weeks worth of food in the house. So there was food. But as far as defenses go, I have no gun. I'm not down south like Tanda, you know, loaded up to the teeth, and I don't have a machine shop. However, I fenced when I was in high school for this exact reason, because, you know, when I was growing up, we were constantly threatened with World War III happening, and like, oh, well, the next war is going to be fought with sticks and stones. I figured, I better learn how to fight with a sword, you know? That's going to come in handy when there's no guns left. 
So swords are always my go-to. Like you, you never run out of swords. You're gonna run out of bullets, right? What is it, Tanda? There's your, there's your difference, I guess, between uh, the area you grew up in and the area I grew up in. Uh, you know, my, my my dad didn't say, you know, you never know what's gonna happen, so you better learn to fence. Yeah. Oh, nobody told me that. <laughs> No one told me that I better learn how to fence. This was like in my mind. This is this is teenage me going, man, I better learn how to fence if there's going to be no guns left after the next nuclear war. This is going to, you know, that that's that's my thinking. So I, I do have six years of fencing experience anyway. I mean, I don't have any fencing experience, but I could build a fence in like an afternoon if I had to. During a monster apocalypse? I don't believe that, Tom. I would definitely add a fence around my house. Yeah, one of the best things to have is one of those pipes with a cap welded on it, a couple handles to drive fence posts. Mm. That makes it go a lot faster if you don't have a backhoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, If you have a backhoe, you can just use the bucket to shove the posts We're in. talking about two different fencing things. I'm talking about actually using, like, if you got a radio that you need to get rid of real quick, you got to find somebody to fence it. Otherwise, you're going to have oh. no cash. Right. You're not going to find that guy in a zombie apocalypse. I don't know. What are you talking about? I am about? that guy. What are you talking about? I'm the fencer. You're basically already a monster, so I don't know. I don't All right, well, getting back to the sword, I started doing research. I, I needed a, an actual functional weapon, not something that was like a play toy like you get, you know, at the flea market. Originally, around the year 2000, I had been looking at buying a Japanese katana. And at that point, they were, if you wanted a decent one, they're about $1,500. That's for a custom-made katana. And that was for, you know, like a low end. However, since then, things have moved from Japan to China, and they're making katanas in China for much less money. So I custom-ordered a $300 traditionally-made katana um, with the multiple layers and all the bells and whistles. And... I get it, and I'm like, okay, this is great, but I need to be able to use this as a functional weapon. Yes, Tom? I'm, ju- I'm confused. Why would you have a katana with bells and whistles in a zombie apocalypse? Don't you want to be quiet and stealth-like? You take the bells and whistles off. They're extras. Oh, all right. I, you almost lost all your credibility there. Continue. But blowing a whistle in the ear of that monster that only has one ear could certainly deter him. Or just piss him off more. Probably both. You'd be deterred and pissed off. So this is this is the process I went through a few years ago. I have a sword in a wooden scabbard, and that's it. I have no way to carry it. So I built a harness system, you know, like a three-point harness system that would attach it to my back. And then what I quickly found out is when you have a three-foot sword on your back and your arms are not longer than three feet, you cannot draw a three-foot sword because it won't clear the scabbard. I had to figure out how to actually modify it so that I could draw it out because if I can't get it out of there, it's basically worthless. So you have to cut a slot in it that will allow you to pull the sword out once it's halfway. So imagine if you're, you're looking at the scabbard from the side, you have to cut out a slot that's the width of the sword. So as soon as you've pulled it out halfway, it cantilevers forward through that slot so that you can draw it. And then, um, and this is still not a perfect system. I still would like to modify it better. But that was what I made from a maker standpoint. I made this basically a quick draw system that fit on my back that I could carry. And I made like, a whole system like a PVC pipe system with targets on it, like hanging targets, like little logs and um, different things that I could quick draw against and test to see if I could like if I could hit it accurately. And I, I ran through this whole system, including like going through the woods 
you know, walking through the woods with it. How much noise was I making? Like I was testing myself to figure out like how much, how good would I be at actually surviving? And uh, not very good. Like I, I needed a lot of improvement. I was very, very noisy. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. Very noisy. Um, the weird thing though, and I have a video of this somewhere. I was taking video and I was putting it up on YouTube, not YouTube, on uh, Instagram, I think. I was walking through the woods and I'm doing videos. I see this trail and I'm like, oh, I think there might be some zombie activity ahead. Better follow this trail. And as I'm following the trail, I start to see bits of fur like on the trail. And I'm like, this doesn't look good. And I, I go in, I follow this trail for like maybe 100, 200 feet. And it literally leads to this pile of guts. Like it looked like a zombie had just murdered somebody. And I'm guessing that somebody had killed a deer <laughs> And just gutted it right there and just left it. But it was like, it was like just so out of the blue. Like I had walked like this place in the woods where I'd walked, I'd walked there like hundreds of times, never seen anything. I mean, one time I thought I was getting chased by a bear, but I never actually saw it. So it was just so weird that I was on my first trip out with the sword and I find like a murder scene <laughs> in the woods. <clears throat> so, yeah. Awesome. And then he ran away and made sure no one saw him on his way out. <laughs> I don't know. We, we saw some evidence, and we saw a guy leaving with a sword. He was running. I think he was up he had to a something. sword. I don't, we don't. <laughs> I, I took video. I've definitely incriminated myself to some degree. All right. He was wearing all blue. I don't know. I, I like Tom's idea about boarding up the windows. That definitely was not a thought I had, and I have lots of windows in my house. Beyond that, uh, the only other thing that I did which uh, I think is important. I was thinking about self-protection. I bought a bunch of bicycle armor, sort of like motocross armor. And it's basically a bunch of padded clothing. And my thought was, if they bite into the pads, they're not going to be able to bite into me. And I don't need something that's bulletproof because, you know, zombies and monsters are not going to be shooting at me. Um, so I just needed something to basically stop them from breaking the skin. Uh, have you learned nothing I will be shooting at you to deflect the monsters. I don't live near you, Tom. I'll come find you. <laughs> I will shoot you with your sword and then steal your rations. Shoot you with your sword? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You heard me. You heard me. <laughs> I, I, just, I just grabbed something that I, that I 3D printed a few years ago that could be useful if you, have a, if you have a 3D printer. Then, you know, you can 3D print your own guns. Do you guys remember the defense distributed no like ba back in the day no. this guy started uh started creating 3d models of various weapons and making them available on the internet so if you wanted to download an ar lower then you could download it and he kind of became you know the uh the test case and and kind of the uh oh what do you call that the not really the poster child, but the kind of the scapegoat where they went in and took his many, many, at that point, it was like tens of thousands of dollars worth of commercial 3D printers and impounded them and shut him down because he was putting 3D models of, of like AR lowers and stuff out there so that anyone could download the model, 3D print it and have it. And granted, it might not be structurally as as sound and and all but they didn't seem to care about that they were just wanting they were just intent on shutting him down because they thought everyone was going to start 
3D printing weapons. You know, that makes me wonder. I know there's been a big argument over whether 3D printing a plastic gun, you know, like you probably get one shot off and then it's probably going to be useless. But that makes me wonder now about the carbon fiber filaments. Like if it actually, if the carbon fiber filaments would hold up more than, the, you know, the previous generation of plastics. Well, there are, I mean, there are 3D printable plastics, you can even 3D printed metal if you have an expensive printer. But the bottom line is, you know, at that time, it was more of a legality thing because an AR lower could be 3D printed and hold up pretty well because it's not really what takes the abuse, but it's what carries the serial number. So you can buy everything else without, uh, without a serial number on it and then print the lower. And I think that was you know, kind of the big sticking point is you can you can print the portion of the gun that tracks the gun. Mm. There's um there's a bunch of gun kits that are like I just googled it real quick to double check, but eighty percent arms dot com. You basically buy eighty percent of a completed weapon, and then you mill out the last twenty percent of what's needed to do, and you have a gun. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of workarounds like that that people have done. I think that's the place that uh, Dave over at Parts and Restoration was talking about because I know he's done that with two different guns. And he said that basically it's it's completely legal, but you're not allowed to sell the gun. Like you can make them for yourself, um, but because they're not serialized and they didn't come from manufacturer, it's illegal to right. sell them. You, right, and you're not an, a gunsmith. They probably can't leave your home either. So like it's, it's legal to make whatever the heck you want to make at your house, uh, but bringing it into the into public is a different story. Oh, by the way, this, this brings up an interesting point. I don't know what the legality is of walking around with a katana on your back, but I walked through my entire town and <laughs> no one said anything. Seriously? Well, it's <laughs> probably because you were wearing those very quiet shoes that split your toes down the middle, right? No, I wore my loud, loud very loud boots. It was not wearing. Oh. There was a weird moment where I was in the forest and like a jogger was going the other way. <laughs> Our eyes met, and I just was like, what's up? <laughs> no, Not about to go murder anybody, just taking a walk with my sword. People probably, uh, yeah, probably didn't uh, didn't care too much, unless you had it drawn and were waving it around. Or No, no, I was just taking a walk. I literally just looked like like I had a backpack on. I think the novelty of it is, is enough to confuse the average person, to have someone with just a sword out. Uh, I, when I was in college, there were a bunch of people causing trouble around the dorms and, you know, kind of, you know, stopping yelling, typical, you know, stuff where, where people were kind of harassing the people in the dorms. A, uh, I won't say a friend, but an acquaintance of mine had a samurai sword. And he went out and stood in the street with his samurai sword. And the next time they came around, I don't think they were that intimidated by it, but, uh, I think just the unusual novelty of it, but they uh, they they took off and and didn't come back. And they were driving a car. And they were, there were a bunch of people in a car, and he was standing out there with his samurai sword, and that was enough to uh, dissuade them. But maybe they just thought, you know, these people are crazy. We should we should go harass somebody else. That brings up an interesting true story. So I was I have a Knights of Columbus ceremonial sword. And it's like the only part of this sword that is sharp is the point. The, the, the sides are they're completely dull. I don't even think it's made of carbon steel. But it's, it's, it's all metal. 
it looks like a real sword and it has a metal scabbard. So I was probably 17, maybe 16. I can't remember exactly, but I was in, I was in high school. And this one night I'm trying to do something, probably homework, write a paper or something on the computer. And there is a car that is stopped outside. Uh, my house was on the corner. It's like a T-junction for a street. And there was a car outside that was honking its horn and revving its engine. And just, this is probably like 11 o'clock at night. It was making like a huge ruckus. And I look outside and I see the car and it's in front of this house that was a halfway house for girls. And so it, it, this guy was doing this for like 20 minutes and I had had enough. So I grabbed the, I just grabbed, I have it hanging on the wall. So I just grab it off the wall. I go outside and I like, I see the car, the driver sees me and I just go running right for his car and I draw the sword out of the scabbard. And I kid you not, quickly slammed into reverse, went up the street, turned around and left and never saw him again. So, yeah, I think I probably got within like, I don't know, 10 feet of his car. And he was like, he you could see him. He was scrambling. He was just like, oh, God. Uh, I for sure think he was going to say that. That's, that's for sure. <laughs>